just a warning, as you probably would have seen by the title, that this episode does go into some pretty heavy topics, including the psychology of murder and the psychology of sexual offending. If it affects you in any way, please contact Lifeline on 131114 or you can contact 1800RESPECT on 1800-737-732. Thanks for listening. I'm Jason. And I'm Maddie. And this is Making Sense of Chaos. My name is Lars Madsen and I'm uh, a forensic and clinical psychologist and um, and I specialise in using schema therapy, working with uh, um, offenders, both in community settings and also in institutional settings. And I've been doing that for about 15 or so years, uh, working with these kinds of issues and these kinds of clients. Um, I'm an accredited schema therapist, so I also um, do accredited training and accreditation for people who are wishing to become schema therapists themselves. And I'm excited to be here today to talk to you, Maddie, about the schema therapy and its application to um, forensic contexts. Thank you, Lars. And um, yes, very excited to see where this conversation goes. So <laughs> as we as we spoke about just before we started recording, I'm new to the field, uh, working in prisons as a as a trainee psychologist. Um, and I guess maybe to make me feel a little bit better, you can tell us if you can think back to your first day um, in a prison. Yeah. Do you remember what that was like? Well, um, uh, well, actually, I, I do. It was it was kind of like a funny day. Like I, I'd um, done uh, I I got my training in 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 Queensland in in Brisbane, and I had. Um, it was my fourth year. I was doing honours year, and we had to do these um, uh, placements. And I arrived late for a tutorial, and, uh, and 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 in this tutorial, you needed to actually choose your your um, where you wanted to go for your placement. And they had all kinds of options. They had uh, options within health, within aged care, within child child and adolescent uh, psychology and 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 one option was working within a prison called Morton Correctional Centre which is now closed down um but that was the only one left so being late I ended up being um that, that was the one that I had to volunteer for and and I, I ended up going for that and so I didn't really know what to expect because I'd never been to a prison before and um at that stage I did actually have sort of like a a vague sort of uh, NCIS kind of interest in forensics because I didn't really know what it was. Um, so, you know, it kind of resonated with me to so, at some level. Um, and uh, Morden Correctional Centre was a protection prison. So what that, um, what that is, is that typically the individuals who probably would be at risk if they could, if they were placed in mainstream prisons would be separated from the mainstream prison and placed in, in these kind of, um, in, in a protection prison. So this would be thing. This would be offenders who uh, were um, child sex offenders who would perhaps be targeted uh, in a mainstream population or high-profile individuals, so politicians or police, or um, other um, individuals that may be notorious for one reason or another. Um, so that would be the kinds of uh, individuals that would be put in a protection prison. It was a smaller prison, as well. Um, so on the day. I um, I arrived uh, dressed in in what I thought was appropriate. I had a had a nice shirt on, uh, which just coincidentally happened to be brown. Um, and uh, as I walked in, I I realised that the prison uniform was actually identical to what I was wearing. Oh my God. So uh, I was wearing a brown shirt and jeans um, and um, and many of the other. Uh, not the other prisoners, but many of the prisoners also had similar uniforms on. So uh, my first day in prison was that was that was it really. It was kind of like funny because I had to then give me like special um, things to wear to make sure that I wasn't being um, uh, obviously detained as a. Oh my god, that's brilliant. (laughs) So that was my first experience of it, Um, and it was look, um, it was a it was a 
it was, I wouldn't say, was it challenging? Yes, of course it was challenging. It's a new kind of environment to get your head around a little bit. And um, I had a really good supervisor and a good mentor at the time called Stephen Smallbone. Uh, he went on and did um, many interesting things with research um, and, um, and the like. So he was a really good, good, good uh, mentor to have at the time. So that was my first experience. And that was a, a placement. Mm-hmm. And at the end of that placement, I got um uh, that was I finished uni and I had the opportunity to just act as a as a counselor um for um six months or something like that and um which I did and and my role at that time was just really really just providing um uh some some basic risk assessment and some basic counseling for for guys who were really stressed or, or struggling in prison Mm-hmm. Um, and at the end of that, um, they offered me a role as a, as a, um, as a psychologist. Um, it's different it was, back then. It was different in terms of how you get registered. Um, uh, it was similar, but it was different. And, um, so I, I got a job as a, a psychologist, uh, running a, a group program for, for sex offenders at the time, the sex offender treatment program. And I did that for a year. Uh, and, and that was a, a challenging experience, I, I have to say. I think that back then there was probably, uh, it was um, back then, uh, it was in the mid-90s, back then there was less understanding maybe of, 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 of working with offenders in, a, in an effective way, in the way that we understand now anyway. Um, so I think what it meant was running groups where you had um, uh, very, uh, you know, uh, people got, got all dumped in this group and there was be about 12 of them and you were doing a, a cognitive behavioural sex offender program that was kind of had a loose structure to it um, and, uh, and guys were just sometimes completely incompatible inca- in- to be in the same group yeah. together and, um, you know, there was very little awareness perhaps of the impact that intellectual difficulties had or mental illness had or um, uh, extreme personality characteristics like very psychopathic individuals had. So they're all dumped in together and, and it was like a, it was like a bit of a circus sometimes um, in terms of trying to run it as a group. Um, but that was, that was my first, my, my first day, my first year working within in a correctional environment. Um, uh, challenging. Um, challenging um but um but I made it through <laughs> yeah well what what kept you going to work when it was challenging and chaotic and scary what what was the driver that kept you wanting to come back um uh, look it, it it's hard to say I mean I think that it, at uh, um there was a part of me that that found the the group the therapy because at that stage you would um we were doing group programs um so you had uh, early on like as a young psychologist you had an opportunity to um you know really work with people uh in in more flexible ways than you perhaps do nowadays and what i mean by that is that there's maybe a lot more oversight and input from senior practitioners than there was back then although you still got supervision and guidance but not in the same way that i imagine that it happens now Mm. um so what what led me to persevere with it well i think at the time i i got um um, some good guidance and mentoring from my supervisor in in the prison um Stephen Smallbone and and I also um got an external supervisor as part of my accreditation process at that stage who was very good mm. and she at the time worked within uh she was a um a, you know a clinical psychologist that would call it we didn't call them back back then it, it wasn't differentiated in that way but um and, and she she specialized in psychodrama um uh, which uh, which is which sounds uh quirky and stuff like that but it it actually was a really good um introduction to um using um experiential techniques with groups because psychodrama is very much about using um uh, experiential techniques with with groups of people rather than just a single person so i found that that really helped me uh run the group um and and i i enjoyed that i found that it was very um it was fun and and, and using these kinds of techniques you know it, it, sort of with uh cognitive behavioral sort of uh, mm-hmm. you know uh, um overall structure um but but i enjoyed that and i found it really 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 uh, i don't know whether it was inspirational but uh, i mean i enjoyed it and i found it interesting and i found the people interesting and i think um but at the end of the at the end of the year i then applied to do a clinical masters which i got into and then i did went on and 
did other work within forensics eventually, but um, that was the first year. And I think a part of me at that time probably thought of it as, well, this is a stepping stone to have them to, to, to get work experience to then be able to apply for higher um, psychology um, qualifications or degrees. Um, and now you're still in the field. <laughs> I, still, I still am. I, yeah, yeah. <laughs> 20 years on. I know, I know. And all, all because I arrived late for the tutorial. There you go, hey? Yeah. Sliding Dale's moment. That arrived first, maybe. Who knows? I've been child and adolescent or something. <laughs> yes. So, so do you think, like, um, you know, looking back now, um, do, you, do you think your job has changed the way that you look at criminals? Um. Yeah. Look, absolutely. I think um, I think that as you go through your career in forensics, I mean, you. Uh, um, I think at the at the end of my first year working within forensics, I was probably quite traumatized because I mean, you get exposed to some quite harrowing uh, uh, descriptions of of violence and all kinds of abuse. Uh, of course, obviously, that the people that you work with are perpetuated, but also when you talk to them about their personal histories and experiences, I mean. I don't think I've ever met uh, a, a person within the criminal justice system that, that 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 has ever really, you know, had a childhood or life where where they have uh, felt loved and cared about and and content. And um, I mean, many of uh, many of them end up having um, horrific, horrible uh, experiences happen to them. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think. Um, does it has it changed the way I look at yeah absolutely I think um I, I think as I've gotten older I think early on uh, there's a there's a vulnerability early on in your career to kind of um, be very much um sort of I think hypnotized not hypnotized but influenced by some of the you know the the, the portrayals of, of criminals and the portrayals of serial killers I use serial killers because it seems to be every second movie in, in this area in, 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 in CIS is about some kind of you know uh, uh, you know serial killer up to something you know I think we we, we um, um, can you know can get a really distorted perception of of uh, um, of, of offenders or offending um, because of the media and the way that they they have portrayed it. As I've gotten through my career, I think I think I start to realise that you know uh, many many people um, who end up in prison, who end up with crime, offending behaviour or criminal behaviour, you know, um, have had really difficult difficult childhoods, and 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 um, you know the way they see the world has been really affected by these experiences that they've grown up in, and in many ways, and I think this is this is what um, schema therapy has really helped me with as well, is that it 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 it, it provides a way of being able to make sense of, of uh, um, uh, offending as not being something that is a reflection of some kind of trait or characteristic that, mm. that, that people are born with, but rather in, in some cases, uh, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a function of how they've learned to cope with the world and how they respond to the world and, um, and, and that type of thing. And I think once you get that other perspective on it, then it becomes easier to have some sense of empathy and compassion for people who are stuck in this cycle um, uh, and that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and if you could um, go a little bit more into that about what, what schema therapy actually is, because um, I know that some listeners will be aware of it. Um, some of them might be practising using yep. it in, in their practice um, and other people uh, will have no idea. So in the most basic way possible, um, how would you describe what schema therapy is? It, it's, it's a model that postulates that... Um, that human beings, in a sense, have um, they they might have developmental and physical needs that that are important to be met when people are growing up, but they also have emotional needs, uh, a need for attachment, understanding, security, opportunities to learn, a sense of learning about boundaries and that kind of stuff. And these emotional needs are um, uh, are really important early on for someone to be able to develop a sense of who they are mm. um, and a sense of, of, of how of who other people are. Um, there's a lot of concepts like attachment related concepts are around these sort of emotional needs. Um, if these emotional needs aren't met for whatever reason, so people experience trauma, they experience physical abuse, sexual abuse, neglect, 
that type of thing, then what happens is that it that, that it kind of lays down particular kinds of problematic ways of thinking about the world and themselves um, that then get kind of perpetuated into their life. So um, a very simple way of explaining it is if, if someone who grows up in an environment where they experience their caregivers to be very abusive, unpredictable and, and dangerous, they then kind of develop a, a template for uh, relationships that kind of mirror these early experiences that people are unreliable and dangerous. Um, and uh, in response to that, they then develop um, coping strategies, ways of dealing with, um, you know, if, if, if you view the world as that, if you view the world that people can't be trusted and that they're unreliable and dangerous, then, you know, you gotta, you got to figure out ways that you kind of respond to, to the world, make sense of the world in that kind of way. Mm. And these uh, maladaptive coping strategies end up being, um, they, they can, well, what's a maladaptive coping strategy? Um, so that might be, you might um, never make yourself vulnerable in a relationship. You might never get into a relationship because you perhaps uh, expect that people will hurt you or abuse you, yeah. or you need to be on the front foot all the time. So anyone that kind of looks at you or, or treats you in a particular way, you need to make sure you deal with them straight away. Mm. You take care of them. You either cut them out of your life or in, certainly within the forensic guys that I work with, they, they, they use violence, intimidation and coercion uh, in many cases to deal with people that they see as threats and they've learned these these strategies these ways of dealing with the world from their early childhood experiences um, and from the schemas that they develop at, at this particular stage now schema is is what is it very simply it's it's if you know the way i explain it to my clients it's like a roadmap right a schema is you know a roadmap for making sense of the world and um and and how you should behave and and these roadmaps get laid down in your childhood and that they and once they're there um, they become very self-perpetuating um so that means we start to um, just notice the things that support the schema and we ignore the stuff that um that, that doesn't support it um so it gets kind of reinforced over time time and time again um in that kind of way yeah and and therapy what schema therapy is about recognizing what these long-term patterns of behavior and uh, uh are and um uh and recognizing perhaps that they're quite maladaptive and they usually are i mean if it's a schema it has to be maladaptive and what i mean by maladaptive is that it it um it, it causes problems for them in their life in one way or another so it either prevents them from feeling good about themselves they feel like a, maybe like a failure or they feel like they're not good at, you know there's something defective or horrible about them or they have difficulty getting close to people trusting people um feeling safe with people you know so um you know these patterns remain in their life and then they try to deal with them in ways that ultimately don't uh, alleviate the core issue or problem which is the underlying roadmap or the schema that mm. um, that relates to that problem so the then the, the coping mechanism itself becomes the problem absolutely Sometimes lands them in jail or mm. yeah well um uh yeah and and in in um in forensic schema therapy the way we conceptualize a lot of uh, offending behaviors uh, um is 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 a uh, is a manifestation of, of uh, you know, these overcompensating coping modes mm. that, that people develop or, or overcompensating coping strategies that people uh, use as a way of trying to um, get their needs met, feel right. safe, deal with problems, um, yeah. uh, you know, make themselves feel good, that kind yeah. of stuff. Yeah, yeah. And, and I'm sure we'll go into it more in a second when we talk about that um child murder case where you use schema therapy but i'm interested um where morals come in um to the decision to choose a certain um pathway um you know an aggrandizing pathway where someone starts to um sort of take their vulnerability and lash out towards others um, Mm. as a way to get their, their needs met and to feel in control to feel safe so um where's where do you see over the years the question of um, morals coming into all of that? Yeah, um, that's a good question. Um, well, I think that um, when um, uh, when 
when people have, um, you know, if we think about what are morals, morals in effectively are, are sort of uh, uh, ideas or abstract concepts that we sort of incorporate into our functioning as a way of guiding our behaviour, right? That's something like that. That's what we would say a moral is. It's not something we're necessarily perhaps born with, although some might argue that we are, but but I think that, you know, we learn. We learn morals about the right thing and the wrong thing. And um, and where do we learn them from? We learn them from, you know, uh, the environments that we grow up in. And I think that people that grow up in environments where they have access and, and, and opportunity to be exposed to people who are kind, loving, compassionate and thoughtful, you know, I think it becomes easier to start to uh, inoculate these kinds of ideas and values in, 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 into who you are, how to be, you know. Mm-hmm. And I think that um, I, I certainly... I certainly know that for, um, uh, uh, you know, a lot of the guys that I've worked with, you know, they, they, you know, and, and this is, this is, this is my own sort of anecdotal sort of observations and is that, you know, individuals who end up having access or an opportunity to a kind, loving caregiver in their childhood when they're growing up end up having a, a more of that kind of um, healthy adult, this is what we'd call it, mm. um, in, in them as well. So they're able to kind of see things from different perspectives, perhaps show compassion, be empathic, you know, um, recognize that there are, you know, that there are different ways of viewing things and, and there's a, you know, a better way of sort of responding and that kind of stuff. So, um, you know, I think that people who've had those experiences then end up having that, you know, access to that kind of um, morality and stuff. Mm-hmm. I think guys who, who, who don't have that, um, you know, will have a different kind of morality and it, it'll be a, you know, the thing of their lives in many cases is it's a doggy dog world out there that if you're not going to look out for yourself, then no one else is going to do it. And, um, you know, there's no one coming. There's no one coming to rescue you. There's no one coming to make you feel safe, to make you feel okay. So you just got to do what you need to do. And, mm. you know, um, if if that upsets people, hurts people, you yeah, know, well, what do I care? It's... Mm. Uh, it's a, um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a matter of life and death. You know, that, that's the experience perhaps for them. Mm. It's interesting. I read this article recently, which is on LinkedIn. Um, I don't know whether you've seen it, I, where I talk about um, the Joker movie um, and uh, it, uh, you know, I highlight the fact that, um, you know, many of the, um, uh, the, you know, the superheroes have all, um, have all got very strong coping modes. Um, like Batman, for instance, has a very strong predator coping mode. Mm. Uh, and Spider-Man has perhaps, you know, something similar as well. Um, but I mean, they're all, they're all, um, uh, they're all for good, right? You know, like they mm-hmm. all try to do the right thing. They have a morality to them, to, yeah. to what they, to what guides their behavior. Yeah. But yeah. essentially many of what the things that they do, many of their coping modes, which were formed out of trauma, like in Batman's case, he he's watched his parents gun down in an alleyway and he struggled with isolation and uh, a sense of um, unfulfillment perhaps throughout his life. And that drove him to become, you know, Batman. And, and Spider-Man has a similar story. He, he, um, his uncle, who he loved and cared about, well, you know, was shot and killed as well. Um, but they become these superheroes that ultimately have a morality for them. And, uh, and when you think, well, well, why do they have that? Well, because both Batman and Spider-Man had um, experienced genuine love in their childhood by people who cared about them and, and, and uh, wanted to make sure that they were safe and tried to help them and showed compassion towards them. Now, when we look at the super villains like Bane and, and, and the Joker, perhaps, um, you know, they also suffered trauma in their childhood, but um, they, were, they didn't experience love um, and they didn't experience safety and they didn't experience um, comfort. So what they, who they became, in a sense, they developed the same overcompensating modes, a self-aggrandizer, a bullying attack, mm. a conning manipulator, a, a predator mode. Um, but they didn't have a moral compass because, in a sense, that, that bucket was never filled because they themselves never experienced love and connection when they were growing up. Right. Yes, that's such an interesting way of looking at it. And so would, would you go so far as to say it's almost a privilege to be able to have the environment around you where you can develop morality? Um, well, yeah, I mean, that's a, 
that's an interesting i think i think it's certainly um an important thing uh i think it's it's something that 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 we that's really um uh i think is 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 enormously powerful i think uh, in a way that we don't quite uh maybe recognize in in some cases because mm. of course there's people that um you know have had the worst most violent childhoods um and then go on to live the most pro-social lives that um you know they want to they want to have the opposite of what they experience where they never harm anyone else mm-hmm. um so it's always interesting to me why some people go that way probably most people go that way and then a minority of people go the other way mm-hmm. Um, and I'm always, I don't know if you've got any thoughts on this last bit, I'm always fascinated. What is it that drives that minority of people to go to go that way? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, uh, I, mean, I'm, I would say there's, there's got to be some aspect of love there somewhere. Mm. Mm. They, they've got to get it from some, somewhere. And I think that that makes a big difference, you know. Mm. So a lot of the guys that I've worked with who, um, I mean, end up in in foster homes or in care homes, or they're made wards of the state when they're eleven, twelve, ten. You know, um, and and the way they describe uh, having to survive these environments is that it it becomes a dog eat dog world for them. You know, like it's if you're not the biggest kid, if you're not the most dangerous kid, if you're not the most psychopathic kid, or not the most psychopathic, but if you're not the most dangerous one in the neighborhood, then or in the environment, then you're vulnerable. And if you're vulnerable, yeah. you're going to be hurt. Yeah. So it's almost like you, you know, and time and time again, with many of my um, my patients that I've worked with, you know, they all describe the same story. It's like, yeah, the only way to get your needs met, the only way to be safe is to be dangerous, and yeah. to be the most dangerous means you never get touched. In fact, you get everything. Um, you you can get whatever you want in these environments. Um, but they school them, so these environments almost shape and school them. Um, I think that there's an there's an added um, element as well because many, you know, I think that if you have um, environments where you know, I think if 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 you um, have things like an intellectual disability or if you have um, uh, some kind of mental health problem like autism or, or, or you, you know, uh, ADHD or any of these kinds of problems in your childhood, then I think that that acts as a, like a, an amplifier of problems in these at this time, which sort of perhaps puts you on a much speedier trajectory in, 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 the, in, in this other kind of direction. Um, and, and I think maybe, you know, some of these individuals who grow up in difficult environments and have horrible things happen to them, and maybe they have, they have a, a you know, a, a strength or an ability, you know, in some way they are either good at school or they are, you know, they have a grandparent or they have someone mm. who cares for them or they can connect to, or they can, you know, feel a sense of success. They can uh, maybe, you know, get involved in sport or, uh, and they get a lot of self-esteem and, um, value and 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 um uh positive regard from from these activities then then it probably also puts them on a different trajectory i think than than if they don't have those things Mm, mm. yeah well one 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 source of care or or someone saying i see you um i care you know i care for you that massive um and yeah and, and, and i'm thinking back to a client that said um, he had one teacher that just looked out for him and yeah. that made the difference. So, yeah, um, lots lots to talk about there. But mm. I think um, maybe you could go into um, that, that case that we were speaking about just before we started recording yep. um, where you sort of used all of this theory to do one of um, the, first, the first study, I should say, on a child sex murderer. Mm. Um, what I'd be really intrigued about is how you both worked to understand the lead up to his offense using mm. schema therapy. So maybe you could tell us a bit about that. Yeah. 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 Um, so with, with schema therapy, we, we talk about this idea of modes and a mode is a side of yourself. Like we all have different sides of ourselves. We have a side of ourselves 
that goes to work, a side of ourselves that maybe hangs out with friends, that spend time with family, that, you know, so this idea of sides of ourselves is, is, a, is a common one. But then um, when we talk about coping strategies, we, we, all, we recognize that there are different coping modes in response to um, certain kinds of triggers. And the forensic modes, um, so these are modes that are uh, that that we that that are very common within the forensic population. So there's there's uh, four of them, five of them actually. The 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 bullying attack mode, which is a, a you know a mode that uses intimidation, coercion, violence as a way of getting needs met. Um, there's the conning manipulator mode, which is uh, a mode that uses uh, deceit, uh, manipulation, conning as a way of getting a need, a need met. Um, so, you know, yeah, um, there's a self-aggrandizer, a uh, mode where, where the person puts himself above everybody else, mm. uh, a predator, which is a very cold focused mode around sort of eliminating a threat. And then there's a parent, paranoid or suspicious over-controller mode, which is sort of like a, uh, you know, um, a mode where a person becomes very, you know, um, orientated to threat and, and, and identifying threat in the environment and, and, and questioning people and things like that. So we say that people can flip in between these different modes all the time and they do that um, in response as a way of trying to keep themselves safe, you know, and they're overcompensating modes because they're all about actually not feeling stuff. They're not fe- it's about not feeling vulnerable. It's about taking power back. It's about being in control. It's about getting your needs met in whatever way you can. So when we look at a, an offence, uh, for instance, a violent offence, uh, sexual offence, what we do is we try to break down um, uh, the sequences of these modes in terms of how relevant they are. Now, usually an offence, uh, uh, when, we, when we sort of track back many violent offences or different kinds of offences, there will be some kind of trigger that sort of sets into play a, a cascade of, of mode flips that, that eventually leads to an offence. Um, so, uh, and that, you know, might be a, um, a sense of, um, so I'll use talking about this, this case study um, for this. Um, so this man had grown up in a, in a foster care orf- orphanage type of environment and he was treated very, um, there were lots of other kids there. The, the, the parental, the caregivers were very detached or, or very unpredictable and cruel to him from a very early age. And he, developed a, a real sense of him himself being defective and unlovable uh, very much early on. As a way of trying to cope with these kinds of feelings, what he would do is he would, um, he, you know, he would try to win over friends and things like that by being overly um, risk-taking and uh, using drugs and alcohol from a very early age as a way of trying to impress people, but also um, be able to sort of not feel, you know, this sense of feeling not good enough or feeling like you're broken or you don't belong. Um, and early on in his, uh, um, in his teenage years, he, he came upon, uh, and I think quite incidentally, he came upon um, this, uh, this habit of, of walking around the neighbourhood at night and, and, and uh, peering in at windows, doing a sort of peeping Tom kind of um, behaviour. And, uh, uh, and this became sort of very compelling for him. Uh, at that stage became very powerful. And when we explored that, uh, you know, it was, there was a sexual element to it, but there was also another element to it. And the element was that that sense he felt powerful, he felt in control. And when we explore, well, why, why is this so compelling for you? Well, you know, he felt very little of that in, in the rest of his life. So for him, this experience of feeling like he had control, he had power, you know, was was very intoxicating for him at the time, and it became very much a habit for him, as a way of uh, as a way of um, coping with just feeling awful and and just feeling like you don't belong and that you're rejected and and that type of thing. Um, and there, you know, he he progressed um, and and got into trouble, got into problems of violence and that kind of thing. And there was the time they was in jail. He then um, was exposed to all these. Um, uh, rape stories of uh, rape and abduction and and sadist, sadistic kind of uh, thoughts and fantasies and um, and and for him at that stage he was also he was he was a young man at the time and he was struggling with um, he he was also a virgin um, so he was this 
you know, you can imagine this tough guy in the community. Everyone thinks he's just so tough. He's so he's prepared to drink more beer than anybody else, take more risks than anybody else, get into fights with everybody else. Um, but he was he was also, you know, a virgin. He felt and he felt deeply ashamed and embarrassed about this because, you know, he felt, you know, and that really triggered his sense of defectiveness that 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 he was unlovable and, and, and un, unworthy and things like that. Um, so so what happened is that at this stage, he then started to have these th- fantasies and thoughts about um, the, 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 you know, uh, sexual fantasies and thoughts that became quite sadistic and, and controlly um, at, at that time. Anyway, um, when, you know, life goes on and, and he, um, uh, uh, you know, um, was struggling to cope in, 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 in his life, he was using drugs and he was, struggling to maintain a job because he was so, um, uh, you know, would have problems with people. He would get into fights with people. He would misunder, misinterpret people's reactions and behaviors and that kind of stuff. And, uh, uh, and, you know, he, um, he ended up getting into a relationship and it was a very bad relationship for him because he wasn't, um, it wasn't, you know, a, you know, a relationship where he felt loved and cared about. It was a relationship where it was, there was a lot of violence, uh, both between both of them. There was a lot of drug use. There was a lot of chaos, but because he had this, this, this trauma, this idea that he was unlovable and defective, he didn't leave the relationship because he felt like if he did, well, who would ever, who would ever love him? Who would ever, mm. he would ever be able to find a partner again, that kind of stuff. So he stayed, but he resented staying and they would have conflict and issues and things like that. And, um, and, and what he would do to cope with this trauma, this, this conflict in the relationship, he would, um, he would revert to what he did when he was a teenager, which was go stalking people at night. Um, and he would usually do it whilst he was under the influence of alcohol or cannabis or speed. And, and, uh, and he started to sort of go through this routine over a, long, over a longish period of time where he would wander the streets at night after he'd had a conflict, so he'd been triggered um, emotionally speaking, um, and, uh, you know, it had triggered his sense of being broken, his sense of being defective, his sense of being a failure, and that would feel horrible. So he would use drugs as a way of trying to not feel that stuff. And then he would go wandering at night uh, um, by himself. And when he was doing that, he would, he would sometimes look in people's windows um, because that would make him feel very powerful. He felt you know, like he would be thinking about, well, I've got one over you. I know you, you don't see me. I've, I've got power, I've got control. So, you know, we would, we started to recognize that there were these different, these different modes, these different forensic modes were starting to just be really dominant and apparent in his, in, in the sequence of behavior. So he would have this, what we would call a self-aggrandizer where he would feel elevated and powerful better than everybody else because you know he he was stalking people they didn't know he was doing that he was looking in the windows they didn't know he so that was very powerful for him um and whilst he was doing that he would play through these fantasies of of having you know taking them and, and hurting them in some way or having sexual contact with them um and you know this that that would be the sexualized element of it and and you know, what he would focus on in these fantasies was not so much, you know, the sexual um, aspect of it, although that was important, obviously, but it was very much around that sense of being in control and having power was very powerful for him. And um, so he would do this as a way of coping. So what we, we would figure out, he would have a conflict with his partner. Was, this would trigger his sense of feeling defective and broken. He would take drugs to try to not feel that stuff. He would go for a walk by himself because he couldn't be with be at home with her, and whilst he was doing that, he would he would start doing this behavior of stalking people, and 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 he would be in a self-aggrandizer type mode where he would be feeling powerful and in control because because um, people wouldn't know and he could hurt them and he would take them and that. And um, you know, unfortunately, you know, for him, he inc- he incidentally came across um, two young victims. And, um, and uh, he'd been, he'd had another difficult uh, situation and um, he, um, he then, um, 
you know, what was different about this time as opposed to the other times when he'd done this was he'd maybe been using a little bit more drugs. Um, he was maybe a little bit more upset um, or distressed. Um, and, you know, he, he enacted the fantasy um, with, uh, you know, uh, on these victims um, and um, lured them into a location and, um, uh, you know, um, controlled them through violence and killed them and, and raped them. And uh, it was, uh, it was in, when we think about the, the different modes that they were in, it was, uh, he was, he was very much in a, what we'd call a bullying attack mode to control the victim. And then in a predator mode to destroy them. And then in a self aggrandizer mode as a way of feeling powerful and in control um, in that moment. So what we would do now, what we do then in therapy is that I guess that um, within forensic schema therapy, we, we try to understand the sequences of these modes in terms of how they relate to their offending patterns in the past. And, uh, and obviously because these modes like continue to exist there, you know, they're a part of you, they're, they're a side of you. Um, we, we try to understand how active they are in a person's life. Uh, you know, so you, you know, you have, if you think about these modes, there's a, a mode of, of, of extreme violence is, is mm-hmm. like a predator mode would be right up 10 out of 10. Um, you know, but you can also have a predator mode being at, at one out of 10, which is, you know, you might have very strong fantasies or thoughts about wanting to take someone out or hurt them. Mm-hmm. And you might think about those fantasies. So might, you might not actually do it, but you'd be in that headspace where you'd be thinking about that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So so with, with schema therapy, I mean, we, we try to understand, you know, like what are the sequences of modes that are relevant? How, how active have they been in the lead up to your offending or offending behaviours? There's usually many behaviours that, that, that are exhibited. And what we try to do is then help um, them uh, to understand like how relevant they are in their day-to-day behaviour nowadays. And um, because they're coping modes, we, we don't see them as actually being, this is who you are. You, we see them as this is a side of yourself that you use to, to try to help yourself feel better. This is a side of yourself that, that you use to um, uh, keep yourself feeling safe or making yourself feel good or making yourself, make, getting your needs met, whatever they might be. Mm. And, um, and we help, help them understand that sequence and then we, you know, we, we try to kind of help them build up another side of themselves, what we call the healthy adult side, which is a, a more functional way of approaching and dealing with problems in the world and getting your needs met. So, so rather than taking drugs, for instance, maybe being able to figure out how you can, you know, deal with the emotional distress without reverting to drugs, maybe talking to someone, perspective taking, you know, uh, practicing you know there's a innumerate number of different techniques one could do to deal with strong negative emotions and rather than um you know sort of allowing the bully and attack side of you to take over and use intimidation coercion figuring out how you can actually you know control or or keep limits on that on Mm. that um, dangerous um part of uh of 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 the person right well that of that mode yeah yeah um what i'm curious about so he if i if i'm summarizing what i heard he was feeling powerless he had no idea how to deal with that feeling um so he took it to um a sense of control and he got that sense of control through um entitlement over others' privacy and then over others' bodies and then over others' fate, whether they lived or died. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm really interested in that, in those jumps and how, how um, it works in terms of victim um, empathy, like um, remorse, um, the, the sense of yeah, the entitlement and the sense of self above anything else. Mm, mm. um where does that come into play for you in terms of um helping them develop that yeah yeah exactly yeah yeah i mean in in my experience you have um i mean obviously uh we have some guys who would be very very psychopathic Mm. they um have a deficit in maybe having certain kinds of emotional experiences 
mm. um, being able to be compassionate or have empathy for other people. And I mean, there's good evidence that, you know, this is not, it's not perhaps a learned thing. This is more a, a thing that um, is to do with hardwiring. Yeah. Um, I think with this fellow, I mean, you know, he, he was, he wasn't, incapable of empathy um and i think that there were his uh the sequence of offending like how it got to that point it, it didn't start at the point of thinking about of uh, you know rape and murder and and violence it it it, it wasn't um that wasn't the the beginning point it well, it started if you think um very subtly from a process of just being um a peeping tom kind of behavior that over a 10 or so year period of time through a process of slight iterations over time became, mm. became more and more extreme. And it was almost, I think over time for, for him and you think, um, and this is the, you know, uh, my observation also with many, many guys who, who become very uh, deviant in their thinking processes, um, you know, that, that there's an iteration that occurs over time to eventually include, you know, quite extreme violence uh, and a lot of, uh, a lot of time. So in a sense, their, their, their capacity to sort of, you know, their, their, their empathy, their compassion, even, even sort of entertaining those ideas when they're in that space just isn't, aren't accessed um, because mm. it's a very sort of tight fantasy process that they, um, that they have been living and enacting. Um when you are able to take someone out of that fantasy process and connect, um, you know, help them become better at kind of recognizing their own, their own traumas in many cases, their own vulnerabilities and and, and their own, you know, um, feelings, then it, it becomes much easier for them to be able to access empathy uh, and compassion, I, I think for their victims and for them, um, you know, it, it's a real, it's a real difficult um, uh, struggle, uh, you know, because I think that um, for for guys who are very psychopathic who don't have that experience, I think they they we will just exclude them from this conversation mm. for a moment because yeah. you take a different approach for them. Yeah. But for guys who aren't like that, I think you know they you know once they've done these things to people, once they've hurt people, and and it's difficult for them to 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 sort of uh, get in touch with that, um, you know, the, the hurt that they've done other people because they immediately then activates their own sense of defectiveness oh. and failure and things like that. And, um, you know, in, in, in therapy, there's a, you know, uh, a process where, where guys will be very, when they come into therapy, they'll be very detached and very disconnected from any kind of emotional experience from their own vulnerability or, you know, the victim's vulnerability uh, in the case um, of their own traumas and the victim's trauma from what, so they're just very detached and disconnected from all that stuff. And, and the process of getting them uh, better able to recognize that and tune into that and, and, and feel that, because that's the important part, you have to kind of feel it. Um, they then, you know, almost flip into this space where they just think I'm just the worst person ever. I'm, I am a monster. Mm. I'm a total monster which, you know, they almost kind of really surrender to this experience where, where, you know, how can anyone think anything nice of me or be kind to me or anything like that because I've done these horrible, horrible things. And, and, um, and you don't want them to stay there because, you, you know, you effectively want, you know, because if you are a monster, then, you know, like, well, why, why stop being a monster, right? Yeah. You know? um, yeah. yeah. You know, you want them to be able to move to a place where you can go, you know what? what I did was horrible and I have a side of myself. I have sides of myself that are really dangerous. I have sides of myself that can be a monster, but I also have other sides of myself that isn't, isn't that. And, and that my, um, my healthy side, right. My, my, my wise, by whatever we want to call that, but we call it healthy adult in, in schema therapy is um, my, my role here is, is is to try to be mindful and keep keep those those sides of myself contained mm-hmm. you know and um uh so you know you want to be able and and in this space where you you know the healthy more balanced side of you you are able to have empathy for other people you can recognize the harm that you caused you can mm-hmm. feel it not just say it 
Um, and, and in a sense that becomes sort of, you know, like, uh, you know, they start to become better able to kind of recognize what they need and, and be able to have relationships with people and deal with their own emotional distress and problems and traumas in ways that are healthy and functional rather than ways that are destructive and, and harmful to themselves and others. Um, yeah, there's, um, my, what my, uh, my colleague, uh, David Bernstein, he, he often uses this quote, um, uh, he, he, he's worked with, um, obviously many, many, um, tricky, uh, uh, patients over the years and he says that he has one patient he you know who 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 says that you know every morning I have to wake up and recognize that I have a predator side and that my you know that this day I need to make sure that 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 part of me doesn't doesn't take over um, because when it does my whole world um, is jeopardized and, and it's very true and for many of the guys here we're not saying that they become cured of, of these sides of themselves. We, we say that actually what you do is you have greater awareness, you have greater abilities to be able to recognize what these sides are and what they do and what they, what they can do if you don't allow them, if you allow them to sort of take over or, or not have limits on them. Mm. Um, so we don't, we never say that they disappear or that they're all fine. It's all a, a matter of being able to sort of recognize that you need to, to know your vulnerabilities and to know your risks mm. and be able to contain that and keep, keep, um, keep those things in check going forward. Mm. Mm. And do you find that, um, because I know you work with mandated clients as well. Um, do you find that, that sometimes it's hard to ha- have people want to develop the, their healthy adult side? Like, it, you know, it's been serving me well to have, to be in crime world and why would absolutely. I yeah absolutely schema therapy is a is a long-term psychotherapy so really yeah. um it, it will take it takes between one to three years yeah. to work with someone on a regular basis and yeah. the first year of, of therapy is really just about being able to establish a relationship and have a rapport mm. with with um uh with your patient um many clients when they come for the first time they they are mistrusting of the process uh they're gonna you know and this is the nature with um personality disorder they they want to turn the tables on you all the time Mm. and um uh you know and and that's what's going to happen so there's a lot of uh, what you could be described as therapy interfering behaviors that are happening over that time but in schema therapy we sort of recognize that this is what's going to happen and really the the um uh these behaviors right that we that are that are manifesting in therapy are in a sense the overcompensating modes the protective modes right whatever we want to call the overcompensating modes the forensic modes that are getting activated you know so you will as a therapist, as, as you know, you, you might have experienced this yourself. I think most people who work within forensic context will experience the forensic modes. It's, it's inevitable. You will mm. at times be intimidated or, or, or be threatened um, in, in obvious ways, but maybe also less obvious ways. Um, certainly there's a lot of um, conning manipulators, guys that will tell you what they think you want to hear um, yeah. or, you know, be the perfect patient when you, when you kind of know that that's maybe not the case. So, um, uh, you know, I would say many, 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 um, nearly all uh, guys that are mandated, I would expect will, will come with no, no, no intention, no genuine intention perhaps of, of you, know, um, uh, you know, helping their healthy adult emerge and develop and, and, and recognising what that is. And, you know, to be fair, you also have to recognise that these guys come from difficult, difficult um, situations and, and their experience of therapists and assessments and interventions has generally not been very positive. Um, mm. And, mm. Uh, and being, being coerced or, or mandated um, to come and, and see a therapist is, is um, you know, for, for a lot of these guys, this, you know, being told what to do is never an easy thing. Um, so it's also very hard for them to to sort of buy into the process early on. Yeah, but I guess eventually, you know, with some of them, you, you do get to a point where um, where they're realising that the, the healthy adult side of them um, is going to be a lot easier than the maladaptive sides and life will just be more simple. Um, so, 
Well, yeah. that's at the end of the day. I mean, yeah. uh, that's exactly it. You 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 got to kind of, um, uh, and I and I say as a therapist, you know, you got to hold it lightly. You can't take responsibility for it, but and you can't be responsible for how people. Uh, you know, uh, in these cases, it, it, this is this is um, you got to hold it lightly in terms of being able to say, look, you know, I'm here to help you help yourself uh, to get better, and I I will we will understand this, and I'll care about you, and I'll be compassionate and 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 genuine and real with you. Um, um, but at the end of the day, you know, it's it's you know, it, I I can't do the therapy. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Every lifting's gotta come. It's gotta come from you. Yeah. Um, yeah. And and you know, that's that is hard. You know, yeah. it's stressful and hard and complicated and uncertain. Yeah. Know. That's what it feels like, I think, for a lot of them. Yeah, so I mean that brings us to a nice place to end, Lars. Um, if if there's something that you can say <laughs> just just on that, why Again, if we go back to the start, why do you persevere today in this field? What's your motivation? What okay. what what do you like about the job still? Um, well, I think that what I've liked about the job over the years has changed and shifted somewhat. I think yeah. that early on, I probably had a bit of a naive perspective of what it was. I think as we go along, what I've enjoyed about um, forensics and, and working with uh, complicated clients is that um, I think... Uh, uh, I enjoy puzzles. I enjoy making sense of things. I enjoy being able to navigate, um, uh, you know, complicated stuff uh, with this kind of stuff. Um, I think uh, that um, I, you know, for many guys in forensics, I think it's, uh, you know, they um, are used to a lot of the time dealing with, um, uh, you know, I think, um, uh, you know, sort of uh, cut and paste kind of therapy where you have to follow a manual or a book. And I think that that's good and that's great. Um, but I think also I enjoy being able to sort of um, form uh, relationships and, and work with people and help them understand their lives and, mm. and, and become better at sort of managing their lives in a, in, in a better way. So um, I, I get sort of psychological gratification out of doing that. Mm. Um, I think also from a broader perspective, I, uh, you know, um, many f- forensics, you know, a lot of guys who end up attending for schema therapy uh, are usually not one-off offenders, as, yeah, certainly with me anyway. They have chronic and enduring problems, which is the nature of, of their life. And um, uh, I think it's really important, uh, uh, you know, an important job an important role to have to be able to work with these kinds of guys to help them become more functional and and, and become better uh, able to sort of exist in the world in a way that doesn't cause themselves harm and mm-hmm. doesn't cause other people harm. And, uh, and I certainly uh, experience a, a very strong sense of, of um, uh, you know, uh, gratification mm-hmm. when I have been working with someone for a long period of time and I can see that they're doing really well and, uh, many of the issues and problems that they've had in the past, they have been able to put behind them and, and, um, you know, start to forge a life for themselves that gives them meaning, um, but allows them to live in the world, in, in, in uh, the community, um, in, in a way that's, that, that works. Right. Yeah. Um, so I think yeah. that, 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 that's, that's, um, that's a pretty, pretty good, good thing to do. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. All right. Well, thank you so much, Lars, for coming on. It's a fantastic episode. No worries at all. <laughs> no worries at all. And uh, yeah, thank you very much for having me on, Maddie. I, I enjoyed chat. And if, if and obviously, if there's anyone that would like to reach out and and um, mm. and learn more about forensic schema therapy, get in touch or get accreditation for for or get supervision for it. I'm 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 uh, I'm very uh, very much enjoyed doing supervision with people and on forensic issues and that. Um, and, and it is tricky. I think this is one of the things I think when you work as a psychologist within forensics, it is really tricky. I think um, the, the, the context, uh, the institutions uh, that people work in, um, you know, are variable in terms of how supportive they can be and, and so how supportive they are. And, and uh, 
I think that can be a really tricky, tricky place for practitioners and particularly practitioners who are finding their feet in, in the first place. Mm, mm, awesome. All right. Thank you so much, Lars. No problem at all, Maddie. That was Making Sense of Chaos. As always, we would love to hear your thoughts. Send us a DM, a voice message on Instagram at Making Sense of Chaos, all one word, or on Twitter at MSOC underscore pod. Thanks, and we'll see you next time.